how intertwined is the strength of our immune system and the food that we're eating? It's very, very strong. It's not talked about enough. You know, the immune system is, is such that it holds a lot of memory from previous exposures, let's say, to various pathogens. It holds a lot of memory. And so if that pathogen comes around again or something similar, it can actually organize its efforts just beautifully. And so what tends to work with one pathogen tends to work with another. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Cranston, Rhode Island, Grand Forks, North Dakota, and Hanover, Germany. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is Episode 6 of Season 6, number 402 overall. Episode 5, it also is, of our Health All-Star Series, and it features a gentleman who belongs on the Mount Rushmore of nutrition. Dr. T. Colin Campbell is with us today. He, of course, the famed author of The China Study. And the question on our plate today is whether the dinner you ate last night is impacting your body's ability to fight off a cold today. Is food the first line of defense against viruses? Or perhaps even worse, major diseases such as cancer? And specific to diseases, can diet both help to not only prevent them, but also join in the fight should someone find themselves unfortunately diagnosed with them? You will hear Dr. T. Colin Campbell talk a lot about T-cells during the interview today. I also had a chance to ask him about whether men or women are more impacted by animal proteins. And we'll also be taking a closer look at casein, and that is a protein that is found in cow's milk, because Dr. Campbell calls it the most significant carcinogen that humans consume. And he admits some of his takes, they're hot takes for sure. But he says these are conversations we should all be having. And those conversations can begin right now on The Exam Room. Sir, thank you so very much for making the time. Thank you, Chuck. It's a delight. Let's talk about the diet and the immune system. How intertwined is the strength of our immune system and the food that we're eating? It's very, very strong. It's not talked about enough. But I should first point out, yeah, the immune system is only one system in the body. So whereas, you know, we can talk about the details of that relationship, keep in mind there's all kinds of other systems, hormonal system, neurological system, so forth and so on. And what, so what tends to happen in the immune system also happens in the other systems as well. Uh, so, it, 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 you know, it doesn't stand in isolation. But uh, to come back to your question, uh, the uh, diet that is whole food and plant-based uh, is the kind of diet that serves all these systems simultaneously. That's an important point to keep in mind. Uh, and so... The, and, and, you know, the immune system is, is such that it holds a lot of memory from previous, you know, exposures, let's say, to various pathogens. 
it holds a lot of memory. And so if the pathogen comes around again or something similar, you know, it can actually or, you know, organize its efforts just beautifully. And so what tends to work with, let's say, one pathogen tends to work with another. I think that's the main point. And, and of course, these days we're talking about viruses. So, you know, we that's where we do. most of the conversation is going, of course. Yeah, you, you know, it's it's funny. I was just this morning looking at uh, the local paper here and was going through and they were talking about this new uh, variant uh, with uh, with COVID here. And it's, you know, supposedly more contagious than the last variant. And I'm just wondering here, you know, how much of our own natural immunity do you think in terms of the pandemic, how much of that natural immunity are we leaving on the table by continuing to pile on our table with highly processed food, fast food, high fat, refined types of foods? Well, the answer to that's uh, kind of tricky. It's not tricky. In my mind, it's very clear, but it's very confusing for a lot of people. Uh, basically, uh, if we're eating the wrong food, the immune system is going to go haywire, to say the least. Um, and so that is, as I said, the whole food plant-based diet. I'm sure you and I agree on that. Um, and there's, we can look at a lot of the details of that. Uh, what I'm almost afraid to say this, but I'm going to say it. Anyhow, uh, I've been really concerned about the discussion surrounding the whole COVID experience. Uh, in my research program, we've worked you know, on a virus, an even more serious virus, I, I would argue, than the COVID virus. We've been working with that since the 1980s, late 1980s, uh, in China. And uh, we had a big survey there at one time in the early uh, 80s, second time in the late 80s. In any case, let me just refer you to some data that we have. It's really a monumental body of data. Um, hepatitis B virus is the virus we're talking about. It causes cancer. It causes cancer. So when we surveyed uh, 8,990 people, to be exact, adults, uh, at a point in time, about 1989 at that time, uh, we collected a lot of nutrition information. We also collected a lot of immune function information. In other words, the amount of antibodies, uh, whether there was active virus present and so forth. Here's the results we got. Those who consume animal food, even a small amount, like even 10% of what we have here. I didn't expect to see anything. But what we saw was those who consumed a small amount of animal food, they maintained the presence of the active virus. They did not form the antibodies. In contrast, those consuming more plant food, they're the ones that made the antibodies, okay? Uh, and it turns out that the people consuming some animal food, they were the ones that got the virus and died. Those who consumed the more plant food, got the antibodies, did not die. Is that clear? And so we looked at this question a little more carefully in the laboratory as well, involving experimental mice in this particular case. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of mechanisms that are involved in this process. One can get lost in this kind of thing. But the one that's much, most current, I would say, uh, we looked at the presence of T cells, where now the pharmaceutical companies are working hard to try and find a waste T cells. Now, T cells, natural killer cells, we call them in those days. They're, these are cells produced by the immune system, and they're sitting there ready to go to work quickly when, when an infection comes on board. And so what we found was the in, in experimental animal study, at least, those who consume more animal protein, they're the ones that got the virus, they're the ones that died of liver cancer, 
and their T cells were depressed. I mean, T cells are good things. It's our defense one of our defense mechanisms from the immune system, if you will. Uh, and so people consume this whole food plant-based diet, if you will, and if I can use a shorthand on that, uh, they were the ones who had the active immune system and among many other things. One of the things it did was increase T cells, a good thing. They're talking a lot about that right now in the present day with the coronavirus. Let's figure out a way to get the T cells up. You know the easiest way to get T cells up, maintain, eat simply and uh, a diet without animal protein. Very simple. And that changes the whole, uh, and I just want to add more and more point. I know what I'm saying here for a lot of people is kind of shocking. They've never heard such a thing before. I took those data, submitted them for publication at the beginning of the pandemic the two of the best known journals in the Western world, well, the whole world, actually. I published there before. I published like 375 papers. So I'm on editorial boards. It's not like I'm unknown. I published extensively. I sent it into those two journals. Do you know this is the first time I ever saw this happen? They wouldn't even review our results, spectacular results, because I was simply suggesting what we saw in China could have great relevance for COVID-19. They didn't want to hear it. Hmm. I never saw this before. They, they just simply would not review it. Finally, I had to go to a journal published in the European Commission Journal of Nutrition. So it did, did get published. But, you know, it does not get the recognition as the other. And so I had another case where they, they just simply didn't want to hear it. Somebody sitting there on a throne did not want this information to get out. And I'm really, really confident that the one mechanism we have for dealing with these viruses, wherever they come from, variants or original viruses or whatever, doesn't make a difference. One one thing that we can do to protect ourselves, keep ourselves healthy, eat the right diet. So mm-hmm. quite frankly, I'm gonna say this and I, I'm not, I don't care what people call me. We decided not to get the vaccine, my wife and I. We're older, obviously, I'm 88, she was 81. And my God, you know, kids and everybody else said, you're crazy, you're crazy. We did not get the vaccine. So then finally, just about two months ago now, we got COVID. Oh my God, you know, and so what happened? We had no fever. We had no headache. We had no nausea. Mine lasted just, we had some sleepiness, a little fatigue for six days. She had hers for about eight, nine days. A bit of a cough that went with it. And that was it, exactly what I thought would happen. But they would not allow the public to hear that. This is really, I would argue, not because I'm saying that this particular relationship of diet with the immune system that you ask about, as it relates to, let's say, a virus disease, as well as other pathogens, by the way, but that relationship, we need to talk about it. But the system within which we are now living does not want that to happen. I'm supposedly immoral, you know, all, all the rest of it. It's really very painful. This is what science has come to. I, I would imagine that that does bring quite a sting with it. Um, you've, though, throughout the course of your career, really faced a lot of uh, rejection and ridicule, haven't you? I mean, in some ways, although the pandemic for most of us is a new experience, um, kind of that skepticism, outright rejection, that's something that's really been following you, I mean, for decades at this point. 
Yeah, it sure has. And that's my new book is focused on that. I'm going to tell exact some details and public is going to be absolutely floored to hear. I spent about 20 years of my career actively involved in political uh, sort of uh, policy, food and health policy development in Washington. You know, often. So I was in that sector. We did a lot of research in the lab. I teach a lot. And so I, I kind of covered the spectrum. But in 1980, or 1978, 79, I was on a government committee at that time. And there was some interest being expressed. There's a committee determining who gets grants for cancer research. Uh, there was only about 13, 14 of us or so. Um, quite a rather important committee. Uh, and there was some interest being expressed about nutrition at that time because we were getting some applications then. I did not want to use the word vegetarian because I don't care for the argument, the, the scientific argument for that. Uh, so I had to come up with a nut, something else. And they asked me to explain to them, I was the only nutritionist on that committee, to explain to them what's nutrition all about. As, as if that's possible. I did my best, but I wanted to come up with a new word. I called it plant-based. And then about six years later, when I was on another sort of government uh, activity, I, the word whole came into view from real data. So that's where the whole food plant-based diet came from. That was the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, so I, I've been there. I've seen this kind of th thing going off in the background. When I started talking about the fact that animal protein turns on cancer and can turn it off, this is the early 80s. For me, that was spectacular because that said to me a number of things, but some really big ideas. Number one, it's nutrition that controls disease not the genes that start the disease. That's number one. And the fact that we could turn on or turn off disease, that meant maybe it could be treated after you get the disease, you could turn it off. I mean, they're pretty huge ideas. When I said that, and I was at the top of my society at the time, I was just a nominee for president of the society. I was, in fact, a congressional representative for, uh, I took a term of that for the whole biomedical research community. What did they do? They petitioned to have me thrown out of my society. The first and only time that it happened in the 65 year history of the society. I survived that and I did some other things. And the more I spoke what I believed to be the truth on the basis of evidence, on the basis of evidence we had, the more trouble I got into. And I could go through a whole litany of the, these kind of experiences that are pretty, in my view, pretty disgusting. And it really came to light. It really came to light during the pandemic. Uh, in fact, uh, it's, it's just, I could go on and on about that, John. <laughs> but, you know, and I know I'm saying a lot of things here that will trouble some folks. But anyone who's troubled by that, all they need to do, go look at the data, the data I've published, and tell me what's wrong with it. I would invite anyone who wants to dispute what I say, tell me what's wrong with it. I rely on science and I would expect they too will have to rely on science. Sorry for that long answer, but you you set me off, Chuck. So that's what it is. Well, you're just making my job easy on me today, my friend. That's fewer words for me. Um, speaking of uh, government policy, uh, I have a question here from Holly. Uh, she's a fan of yours. She's read the China study. And she said that when she was reading the connection between uh, government policy uh, and our health here, in the book, she said she got really frustrated and she's wondering, have things improved at all since the release of the book, given what it was you just said? I'm kind of left scratching my head as well. 
Well, not much has happened. Uh, the, that, maybe the best thing that's happened is kind of crept into the language, if you will, is the word plant-based. I mean, we, I had to kind of live with that. I actually put it in print in the early 80s, but you know, so maybe it didn't get a lot of exposure. I don't know. But it kind of started getting out there because that's what I was talking about it. Uh, so the word has gotten around, as we all know, uh, pretty far and wide. And so the policy community in, at USDA, that's what makes the Dietary Guidelines Committee, for example, that we hear about every five years, uh, they have been picking up on this concept and given some attention to the idea that plant-based nutrition is maybe not a bad idea. So it's getting more and more play. So I have to say, I guess, almost reluctantly, that yeah, it's getting some play, but the real the real statements that need to be made are not now being made. That's that's the problem. But keep in mind, the agency in the government responsible for giving dietary advice for the American public, if you will, that's the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA. Uh, and they, I say, they revisit that question every five years. What's a group of scientists, I should add? Uh, but in any case, uh, they haven't changed their languages that much. So what do we have? We have a system by which the public is not getting the kind of information they really need to get. And at the same time, we as taxpayers are paying subsidies. They're using some of our money to support the very food industries that do not need to support. But it makes more sickness. We have more more sick people, about the highest in the world, almost the Western world. So we get sick. Okay, not, don't worry about it because we have another agency, the Health and Human Services, that is responsible for producing drugs to keep us well. So again, again, I'm being I, I know I'm being controversial for a lot of people, but all I would say, look at the facts. You know, we own opinions, we don't own facts. That's what keeps me going. I, I really try to work hard. I mean, I came from a farm, milking cows. You know, every day, get up in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, stuff like that. I know very well, and, and, high, and, and produces high animal protein. So when I went to school, and I was graduate school, I did my doctor dissertation on some procedures to advance the consumption of more animal protein. So I came from the other side of the railroad tracks, totally, 100%. Mm -hmm. and so I had to wrestle with that, and that's that's what caused some of my problems because uh, how could how could I dare, if you will, you know, question my own research community? Oh, you rebel, you. You are a rebel, sir. <laughs> that's the way it's been, but you know, there's no other way around it. I don't I don't make choices except to just to try to deal with what I see to be the truth. And I had to change my own mind. I had a lot of biases like everybody else. You mentioned milking the cows and, and growing up with, with dairy. Um, that brings me to casein. I wanted to ask you about that today as well. You're you know, widely quoted as saying that casein is uh, one of the most significant carcinogens that we consume. Um, how does casein... Uh, in dairy, how does that compare to what the World Health Organization would cl uh, classify as a group one or group two A carcinogen in red and processed meat? Yeah, I know that organization very well. In fact, I've lectured before them. They're in Lyon, France. That's where the laboratory is. Uh, and uh, we have two organizations in this country, uh, national organizations, uh, one in uh, Raleigh Research Triangle Park in North Carolina, 
the other in Arizona. But in any case, set that aside. I, I've really been involved in that space. Um, and they're the ones that might to moderate, control, or whatever, organize the uh, so-called testing procedure, you know, for determining what's a carcinogen and what's not. Um, it's called the uh, bioassay method. Uh, and uh, so I know fairly well, and I know the structure of how it's done. What is done is this. Um, most people think, and as well as those who are involved in this kind of work too, that the, one of the chief causes of cancer is environmental chemicals hanging around here, there, wherever. And so there's been efforts made for the last 60 years to determine which chemical causes cancer, which doesn't. Uh, it's, I don't want to get into details in this particular case, but it's, it's done in rat studies. Uh, you feed different, different levels, of course, of suspect carcinogen at fairly high levels. And if you see any cancer, then you try to extrapolate back to see what level might be allowed for human exposure. Okay, uh, go back to the second time, it's a little bit complicated. But in any case, the carcinogens that we tend to assume are important are the environmental chemicals. And now we have a lot of environmental chemicals. So some of them are nasty. I don't mean to, to detract from that, that, that notion. You gotta be careful with that. But the ones who actually, the chemicals that actually cause cancer, there was almost no evidence, epidemiological, epidemiological. Uh, there's almost no evidence that these chemicals are really causing cancer. What's, because those chemicals are the ones that attack the genes, mutate them and so forth, as, as part of the equation perhaps, but what really controls the cancer is the nutrition we consume, the kind of diet we have, which doesn't mm -hmm. deal with that. But when we, to go back to your question, when we take one of those nutrients that really is pretty potent and causing cancer, namely animal protein, if we put that in a system and they won't do it, I blush it to that group as well, they won't do it, they try to sidestep it. There's no question that technically casein is the most potent chemical carcinogen ever. It's not tested, not official, they wouldn't do that. But I'm talking, you know, the hundreds, thousand times or maybe a million times more potent in terms of increasing cancer rates We follow that model than are the environmental chemicals. So when I say that, once again, I know it's controversial, but I would just ask someone uh, to just challenge me on it on the basis of the evidence. Let's bring the immune system back into this as well. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think about the immune system, they think exclusively about things like, you know, the COVID-19 or the cold or the flu, a sinus infection, something like that. The immune system also can work to fight cancer, can it not? Yes. In fact, one of the ways it does that, by the way, there's, there's two major ways. Uh, one of which is the uh, T cells I spoke to before. Uh, that's the immune system reacting. And what... What the T cells do, uh, when let's just start at the beginning. Cancer starts with a mutation. And these chemicals, so they're around, can cause a mutation. They're very rare, to be honest about it. But we have in our system an ability to be able to repair those uh, mutations. But some of them don't get repaired. They slip through. And so uh, the cell divides. And now it's producing a cancer with the potential to be carcinogenic or cancer-forming. Okay. At that particular point, that's when the T cells come into play and attack those cells. So, uh, yes, to answer your question, a healthy immune system can actually handle this likelihood, if you will, or probability, 
in some cases, of getting cancer, the immune system plays a role. Mm. It plays a role. Uh, the major one being, uh, as I mentioned before, there at least one we're, we know about, I'm sure there's other mechanisms too, but the whole idea of producing T cells to uh, control the cancer. Sure. And that's one of the mechanisms, by the way, one among many, why uh, an animal protein-based diet, low in antioxidants and all that sort of stuff, that's why it uh, you know leads to cancer. When it comes to cancer, a lot of people also say, well, look, you know, there's a, a huge genetic component that comes into that. So if, if somebody's mother has had breast cancer and their father has prostate cancer, their grandmother may be ovarian cancer and their grandfather, another form of cancer, lung cancer, you have all of that working against you. But if you then eat a whole food plant-based diet, like you and I have been talking about here, what are the chances of being able to break that cycle? How do they compare to the average person? Well, again, you kind of have to make some estimates go along here, but the data are really strong. We could eliminate, I, I, without a doubt in my mind, at least 80, if not 90% of all cancers you know, with this kind of diet. That's the way it works. Because if you look at the relationship between, let's say, the amount of cancer for a number of different cancers, the relationship between the kind of diet we're talking about and the rate of cancer for different countries is very clear. Those who are consuming closer to this whole food plant-based idea, the rates of cancer are very, very low. So you look at the differential between the highest and the lowest, and that's why, in part, I get my number from the 80-90%. So diet is really important in that sense. And as a nutritional effect is not the chemical effect. Now, the chemical effect, as I mentioned before, uh, it starts out causing a mutation of the gene. That's how cancer starts. A normal gene will be changed, mutated, if you will, the other word. And, and then when that cell divides, it's a, it produces a daughter cell that's got the potential to form cancer in a few rare cases. But it sits there, it's nasty, nasty. you don't want that. And so, then, as I say, the body comes into play again to create some cells from the immune system to keep under control. Well, let's let's talk about what uh, one of the healthy diets is that's out there. You know, everybody says that look, you you should be eating this low carb diet. Well, it's not everybody, but a lot of people now say, look, cutting out the carbs is the healthiest way to go. Uh, based off of what it is that you're telling us here today, it seems like if somebody were to take uh, carbs out of their diet, they probably then would not necessarily have the strongest immune system because they wouldn't be able to eat all of those whole foods that you're saying there's such great benefit from. Correct. Um, the whole food, I mean, I'm sorry, caught up in that idea. The low-carb diet uh, really first started being called the Atkins diet. That was in 1973, approximately. Uh, and D Dr. Atkins uh, was uh, troubled in his college by some of the things that were being mentioned at that time, the possibility of eating more vegetables and fruits and grains. So there, there was pushback. It started as a pushback kind of idea. So Atkins then uh, claimed uh, that, uh, you know, we what we the real problem with our diets was all that carbohydrate, which only comes from plants, by the way. So it was an indirect a fairly effective uh, message for the public. Don't eat so many carbs. You know, and, and what he was really saying was don't eat all that plants. You don't need that. 
you know, eat the animal, animal food. And so it started out with the Atkins diet. Now, let me say this here real quickly. Um, the Atkins, when somebody goes on a low-carb diet, uh, pretty routinely they'll lose weight if they have weight to lose. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Also, at the same time, their serum, serum cholesterol tends to drop. That looks nice and impressive. So that'll tend to hang around for a bit, maybe a month, two, a little longer. For, but the problem is people don't stay on it. So in the short run, we can see what looked like to be beneficial effects. That's what's attractive to people. I want to lose some weight. You know, they hear these kind of things, so they go on the low-carb diet. But in reality, they're on a high-animal pro- protein diet. If they stay there more than six months or a year, they're well on the way to getting heart disease. So it's a short-term effect. That's the way biology works. The short-term effect is what they're talking about. So it was an Atkins diet, and the Atkins diet is low-carb, if you will. Then it came up with a lot of other names. They kept changing the name over the years to make it look like a new diet, like the paleo diet, for example, or keto diet. They're all the same. Paleo diet, keto diet, low-carb diet, Atkins diet, you name it. Um, So uh, it's been a, a pushback against the whole food plant-based diet. That's what it's been. Highly motivated, you know, by, let's say, for profit sector uh, uh, companies, if you will. If you will. Uh, and so, uh, and in the short term, we see some things that look kind of interesting. Yeah, you, who doesn't want to lose weight? You know, for those who have a little extra, you, you know the story, uh, Chuck. And so, um, and, they, and people get onto it, but the vast majority of cases, people are off of it by six months. Yeah, sometimes yeah. a little bit longer. Uh, sometimes it'll kind of hang around. But you know, I, I worry about those people because long term, Atkins himself died of heart disease. Well, that doesn't get talked about all that often, now, does it? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we've got about uh, ten minutes left here. So, if there's a question that you have for Dr. Campbell, post it in the comments or in the chat. We're going to open up a, the mailbag in just a second here. Matter of fact, let's do that now. We'll take a question from Tim. Uh, Tim is wondering whether you noticed if there was a stronger relationship between animal proteins and uh, the immune system or cancer uh, in men or women. Uh, does it matter the sex or is the effect there the same? No, it's about the same. I mean, different cancers, obviously women, uh, breast cancer, if you will, urine cancer is part of the problem for, for that gender. Uh, in the case of men, it's prostate cancer. You know, obviously, so we got some differences there. But otherwise, on the cases like uh, colon cancer or even some of the non, uh, non-cancerous issues, if you will, chronic kidney disease maybe. Uh, you know, heart disease, obviously. Uh, those, as far as I am aware, not much difference in the rates. They're both, they're, you know, the, the wrong kind of diet, animal protein, if you will, will increase the rate for those diseases of both sexes. So the only distinction between them is the breast and uterine cancer, let's say, in the case of women, prostate cancer in the case of men. I want to say a quick hello to Stanley, who's joining us live for the first time from Johannesburg, South Africa. That is very neat. Uh, we also have, um, who else is joining us live for the first time? Caitlin made it to the live today. Thank you so very much for being here. Um, question coming in at 12.02 from Connie, wondering what your opinion is on soy. I find it hard to have a conversation about cancer without soy coming into the conversation. Where do you weigh in on the soy debate? Yeah, that's a kind of old story. It started near the beginning of my career when I was working in the Philippines, actually, when the U.S. and the Philippines were 
in some business discussions at the time. But in any case, soy was competitive when it was first introduced, was a potential competitor to the dairy industry. There were discussions about the fact that soy protein might be better than, you know, milk protein, if you will. Um, and so there was, you know, I say trade and accusations between these two organizations. It turns out soy does have substances in it that have some hormonal activity that could be argued could increase cancer. Yeah, that's that. And one side really took that to, to the to the bank, basically. And, oh, soy's got carcinogens and it's going to cause breast cancer. That's nonsense, total nonsense, because the carcinogen-like, I'm, I'm sorry, the hormonal-like activities in soy actually turn out to be anti-hormonal. In other words, they're anti-estrogenic, I should say. They're anti-estrogenic. So that whatever hormone activity is, is seen, you know, in a test tube or, or you know, what, a petri plate or whatever in the laboratory, that level is very low and it's good. It actually tends to block the hormone, the, the estrogenic activity that would otherwise occur in the case of animal food. So soy, forget it. <laughs> Don't get concerned about the claims that soy somehow has, uh, you know, estrogenic activity and therefore they have a higher risk of, of breast cancer. Not true. Not true. It's, it's, a, it's one of those things that goes on in policy in the corporate world where they're trading they're trading blows and accusations and all the rest of it. So it's, it's kind of stuck around for a long time because uh, soy is now finally, I'm talking about times before soy was being used, before soy milk was available. Since mm -hmm. that time, soy milk has now become available, as you know, and tofu and all the rest. And oh, yeah. uh, so it's just a big, it's a big product, let's face it. Good oh, product. it's a big, big product now. Uh, yeah. Not quite on the level of cheese, though. Let's go back to that conversation. Talk about casing for a moment. A question from Stephen Turner at 1218. Stephen is wondering whether the protein found in cheese is primarily casing. Yes, about 85 to 90 percent of it is casing. Ooh, that's a pretty high number. At least that, that's what the number is for. Let, let me back off just for a second. That's the number. Uh, we get any more, more specific about that. They, it's generally 87% to be, to be born in, in dairy. And so you take the dairy and make it up, and I think it more or less is still around that level. 87% of the total protein is, in fact, casing. Monica at 1217 is wondering what your thoughts are, Dr. Campbell, on a diet that is based in raw fruits and vegetables and soups and potatoes and even white rice. So I guess a primarily raw diet. Is there any difference between cooked food and raw food in terms of health in your eyes? Yeah, raw food. Raw food is, uh, it's not, I mean, salads, let's face it. Salads are very good in that particular case. But to subsist on an entirely raw food diet, I don't see any evidence to uh, suggest that that's really better. Um, so, and the question concerning the effect of raw food on gastric enzymes or intestinal enzymes and stuff like that, I also think that's kind of over the top. Uh, so, but raw foods, yeah, let's let's have raw foods, eating fruits and vegetables and salads and stuff like that, it's a good deal. Uh, and a lot of them, uh, but uh, we can cook, my gosh, we can cook without really any harm occurring with that in that particular case. No, no convincing data I've ever seen that does that. Let's take two more quick ones here. We've got a question from Teak at 1232, uh, wondering whether they would be right in concluding that uh, food can prevent cancer, but it's also beneficial in terms of cancer that may already be existing and helping that person in their fight. 
that's a good question. Uh, that's one that, uh, again, uh, some of us in the, in the trade have been, you know, hoping that that kind of thing can happen. And, and uh, in fact, my son, who's a physician, my one of my sons, uh, who co-authored the book with me, has been now doing that kind of study. Early stages, got some really interesting data. Uh, the problem is it's difficult to get that kind of work uh, funded because uh, if you can show a beneficial effect, uh, that kind of throws a, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a barb in a way of, let's say, <laughs> relying on uh, chemotherapy. Uh, so, but I, I'm of the opinion, and let me emphasize this opinion based on the, my familiarity with the data, um, and, it, and that is that the whole fruit plant-based diet uh, should, you know, be able to, and we have some data that I'm talking about that can actually, let's say, hold stable the progression of that cancer and in the laboratory, reverse it. So. All right. Whether one wants to take that to the bank or not is a, is a you know personal choice, but I don't see how, and given all the data we now have, that uh, that would that, so it can only be helpful. We've covered a lot of ground here today, so let's take a curveball, kind of a fun question to wrap things up. Uh, Joan at twelve twelve, Doctor Campbell, get ready for this one. Joan is wondering what your favorite meal would be if you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life. What would that be? I, I eat what my wife prepares. <laughs> I leave that. Like yeah, she's she's been fantastic. Really, we've been married for more than sixty years, by the way, and. We've got five grown children and so forth. And so she kind of got into it. As I was seeing the data emerge at that time, starting in the 1970s, uh, you know, it started looking better and better. We started to change and change. So it's what she did, she just started, you know, grabbing the recipes wherever and making up some of her own and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, my, my favorite meal is... Uh, what we have salads, believe it or not, you can actually get enthralled with salads at lunchtime. Uh, I never thought that would be possible, but you know, we kind of like that. Uh, but the rest of it is, uh, you know, a lot, lot of fruits along the way. Uh, and in the evening, we have, she has a, obviously different kinds of menu plates. We like Thai food without much oil in it. Uh, Chinese food, they're, they're some of our favorites. Um, and, uh, Gosh, what else can I say? I mean, there's so many different foods out there. Uh, I know. Potatoes are great. Rice is great. Whole grain, uh, you know, the whole grain uh, uh, rice, if you will, or, or wheat is better, probably. Um, and the potatoes, yes, the whole thing. Uh, what else? So what you're saying is you're not going on a low-carb diet anytime soon. No way. You know, <laughs> about 80% of my energy comes from carbs. Thank you, Dr. Atkins. There you go. <laughs> hey, listen, right now, uh, you can head over to nutritionstudies.org and sign up to get uh, Dr. Campbell's plant-based certificate from eCornell. There is a 15% off right now during the winter sale. Um, so many, uh, thousands of people have gone through your eCornell program and come out. Um, what is that experience like for people who register for your classes? Well, it's been, it's very gratifying to say, say the least. I mean, I was teaching that course at Cornell University at the time as a kind of a, 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 just a lot of students wanted to hear something about this. And so I had a course goal. It's very popular with the students. 
But then it was taken out of the catalog. Another experience I had, you know, by someone who has had a great allegiance to the dairy industry. He wasn't supposed to do that. I went all the way to the president of the university on that one. But even the president couldn't act on it either. So I said, they said, why don't you go on this online course? We have it at the time. It was new. So it was, you know, kind of uh, tentative. So I, I went to the online program that the university was just picking up at the time, and we organized it for that. So it was in large measure some of the course that I was teaching on the campus. But now, after after that got going, we got a lot of other people coming speaking in that course. I don't know. I think we've had like 20, something like that. Uh, and, and incidentally, one more thing. We're going to have new coming up soon, a, a completely Spanish version of that course. There's 500 million Spanish-speaking people in the world. So we're very excited about that opportunity coming up. My my daughter, who has a doctorate in actually education uh, curriculum development, she's now the president of this organization. Love to hear that. That's fantastic. Uh, there's so many people out there that need to be reached all over the world who all speak all different languages. And the more that we can do to reach them, the better off we all will be. There's no question about that. So nutritionstudies.org is the website to go to, to sign up right now, 15% off during the winter sale. Dr. T. Colin Campbell, this has just been such a real treat. Thank you so very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Thank you. And Chuck, you make it worthwhile. You make it worthwhile. You, you tried it yourself. So congratulations to you. Thank you, my friend. I greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate that. We will talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you. It is simply incredible to hear from such an icon like Dr. Campbell, a man who continues to bring to light that we are not powerless and that a ton of power is on our plate. I mean, think about this. The man is well into his 80s. He's not slowing down anytime soon. And in fact, did you catch the fact that he mentioned he's working on a new book? Unbelievable. It goes to show that if you find your passion and you find what drives you, you can keep moving forward. Dr. T. Colin Campbell is a health all-star if there ever was one. Man, I can't wait for his book to come out. Just can't wait. Our health all-star series rolls on. Cyrus Kambata from Mastering Diabetes will be on the next show. And also coming up, Dr. Gemma Newman, the plant powered doc. And then Dan Butner from the Blue Zones will help us unlock the secrets of the longest living communities in the entire world. And then we will be wrapping up our series with a plant based diet revolution with our good friend, Dr. Alan Desmond. He will be here to answer your questions and raise our health IQs. Now, each show begins, you can join us live. Each show begins live at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. And of course, the podcast replays will be available right here on Apple Podcast or on Spotify or wherever it is that you get your show. So make sure if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star rating so you never miss an opportunity to raise your health IQ. Now, before we go today, there is a new study out that is showing if you have a green thumb, 
you might be giving yourself a green light to a longer life. Might be talking a little bit about this with Dan Buettner. Researchers at the University of Colorado decided to examine the health benefits of gardening. And what they found was that it can play an important role in preventing cancer and other chronic diseases, as well as improve your overall mental health. So what they did with this study was take close to 300 people who were about 40 years old in the Denver area, and none of them were gardeners. And then they broke them up into two groups. Half immediately began actively gardening in their community, and then the other half they were asked to wait for a year. But eventually, everyone was given courses on how to garden, and they were also given a plot in a community garden along with seeds to get them going. And the results were impressive to say the least. The gardeners began eating more fiber since they quite literally here were eating the fruits of their labor. They saw a 7% increase in fiber consumption, but the benefits didn't stop there. They also found because they were gardening that physical activity levels jumped by about 42 minutes per week. That's huge. So already we have more fiber and more exercise. And while their gardening prowess increased, the participants also said that their stress and anxiety levels decreased. The study shows that those who were already super stressed coming in, they actually found that they had the biggest reductions in stress and anxiety and the biggest improvements in mental health. And the topper of all of this is that participants also made new friends and they built themselves a new, healthier community. And the study's authors say that this could be a game changer for everyone including in low-income communities where food deserts are so prevalent and fresh produce is so scarce. It's a fascinating study, and if you want to check it out, there's a link for you to do just that in the episode notes, along with a link to enroll for the Center for Nutrition Studies Plant-Based Certificate, the eCornell class that Dr. Campbell and I were talking about. And lastly, if you live in L.A., don't forget, circle March 30th on your calendars. We are coming your way. Dr. Neil Barnard and I will be doing a very special live taping of the exam room right there in Los Angeles. Would love to have you join us for our 10 million download celebration. Details to come, so stay tuned. But for today, that is all the time that we have. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredibly gracious and inspirational T. Colin Campbell for being here with us. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Mm-hmm.